offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Well, hey folks, it's actually been a while, but every once in a while, rather than having a guest on the show, my co-host Brendan and I get on the microphones and we actually dive into some of the concepts of family systems theory. And uh, Brendan, it's been a while since you've been on the show. It has, just like the last episode, I think. Yeah. Yeah, we've had it, so many guests want to come on that we haven't, and you and I just haven't had as much time to to really get going on this. Right, and I think schedules too. Like mine's been pretty nuts with the load I've been given at the church recently. And Right. Yeah. Yeah, so that's where I wanted to start. Before we get into um, system theory, I think one of the, the gifts of this show is we do just kind of catch up on where people are at and what they're carrying, whether they're struggling or doing great. And uh, I, was, I was driving back from a meeting this morning and it, it occurred to me that um, when we started the podcast, you were in a role at the church that was significant, but it wasn't carrying the kind of weight you're carrying now. Yep. You've now kind of become essential to the fabric of the church. Yes, yes, I have. Uh, tell us what that, that's been like for you. Man, it's been, a, it's been a, I think, a, a huge mind shift for me. Like I've had, I think the other, like a couple of weeks ago, I was actually thinking, I was like, wow, I, I didn't realize how much I was actually on my shoulders until... I think Jimmy and I sat down and did a, not necessarily a workload scrub, but a similar one. We figured out exactly everything that I was doing. And I was like, yeah. I stood back and I was like, oh my gosh. Um, but I think the team's aspect has been, um, I think the biggest learning part for me was learning how to lead all these different volunteer teams. And then now having somebody who's paid on staff who works under me and learning how to manage and engage and um, create an environment of low anxiety for this person as they're stepping into a church role for the first time. Like that's been big. And I think one of the even the harder things for, that I've learned, the hardest thing for me to learn has been people are really, um, when they're in a certain role, it's been done a certain way. It's really hard to get traction to change that role. Yeah. They kind of get rigid. Right. And so there's been, as, as the church's discovery has grown, um, we've done things certain ways in the past and they worked well for us when we were a smaller size. But now that we're at the size that we're at now, I've been trying to reevaluate, you know, what, why do we do it this way? What is the reason that we keep doing it this way? Is there something that we can do different? And just talking to churches around the area about how they're handling, you know, their hospitality teams, things like that. And finding out that the way that we've been doing stuff now isn't sustainable for us in the long term. And just getting people on board with me to get that traction going, their first immediate reaction is like a high anxiety of, oh my gosh, you can't do this. Why? Yeah. And we've already had so many changes at Discovery in the last year anyways that it just feels like I'm, I'm heaping more coals onto the fire in a sense for these people. And so learning how to manage those anxieties from these people that come up to me on Sunday are like, I, why would you do it this way? You can't like, why? And then I have to you know, in some ways manage my own self is like, okay, I'm not going to get upset with this person. They have genuine concern. Let me just tell them why I think that we should do it this way. Yeah. So it's been, man, it's been a a fast learning curve and learning how to navigate those conversations and um, just people coming to you with the anxiety that's so infectious. And if you let it get to you, man, it affects my whole, like Sunday, my whole week. Like, I, you have to take a, a step back. Like sometimes on Sundays, I'll have to go and sit down in a room really quick to take a couple of breaths to kind of recenter myself. So, you know, what's interesting is, is so you're, you're coming and bringing some needed change for where we're headed. What's interesting to me is it, it feels like people look back in the past and mythologize. Right. Because all I've ever known in my 14 years at Discovery is change. 
We've, mm. We have just not ever been very constant for very long. We've been a pretty dynamic, by which I mean changing organization. Right. But I think people forget that and or maybe they run out of capacity for change and they start acting like we were ever very stable for very long. Right. Some of the changes that you're enacting, um, you, you're stepping into to what it was like for a four-year period where we grew exponentially every year. That, right. that was hardly stable. Yeah, that wasn't. I guess you're right. But people are looking back on it like a not nostalgic, but I don't know. Somehow they put more stability in the past than really happened. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's weird. Like people, I, I don't, and I'm this way too. It's like and I'm, I get so used to a certain way of doing things that when I have to readapt to something, it it's difficult, but it's a lot less hard than I think it's going to be once once it happens. Yeah. So I. Like one of the things that that I started doing this last year was changing our entire database system over to a new system. Right. And I I bit off way more than I could chew on thinking that, oh, this would be easy. Everybody's going to love it. And I had to like spend like six months getting everybody like excited about it and to finally get, oh, yeah, let's go. And now people are asking, when are we going to do this? When are we going to do this? So it's. Yeah, it's weird. I don't know why people are exactly that way. I'm sure there's probably some family systems thing in there about yeah. like the static nuclear family system and how that carries into the workplace. And when you enact any change into any system, it's always it, – it, it, it makes people anxious. Like it just creates anxiety, which yeah. it shouldn't, yeah, but any, it does. Any change brings sabotage. And, you know, when you make a statement like that, the, the biggest mistake a leader can make is to believe that we never bring sabotage. Right. Sometimes like a younger leader – or a new leader to your organization will come in with ideas and you are the one that's sabotaging their progress. But yeah, change always brings sabotage and always generates anxiety. It's like a lock. So let's grab one more idea and then we'll jump into our theme today. Okay. You're now leading other staff. That's also new. That's a leadership right. change. Right. What's that been like? It's been difficult. Like I, not not difficult in the sense of, man, I can't do this, but and not difficult in the sense that the people you're leading are difficult. No, not at all. Yeah, they're not like, the problem. There's just been small things where I, like, because my my personality type, like, I'm an eight, I'm an eight on the enneagram. I'm a high D. Um, I can bulldoze a lot of the times and not even realize that I'm doing it. And I think about two or three months ago, one of the people came to me, like, sent me this long text about how they felt like they weren't being listened to, and I was like, whoa, like, I didn't know this was going on. And so when I finally sat down to them, they told me and they felt like they could tell me that the way that I came off when I was listening to what their complaints were was I was defending the other person that they were talking about. And like having to separate my own anxiety that I feel like they're attacking me, but they're not. And I just need to be there as a space for them to talk and listen to as their superior was difficult, a big, huge learning curve for me. But now I think that I've, that's been addressed, that secret knowledge that I didn't know about, like it's, it's helped me listen more to the people that I work with instead of just telling them how to do something. Yeah. Cause that's, that's, I mean, that's my personality. I love, I like, I have a hard time trusting other people to do things. And this has been a good role for me learning how to let go of control of things that I've been doing and I want to do well and say, Hey, you can do this too. Um, why don't you take it and run with it? And then I'll help you along if you get stuck. Like that's, that's been really freeing for me learning how to let go of control. Because that's yeah. been a big part of my life is controlling everything as much as they possibly can. So. Right. That's right. Yeah. And listen, if you're a, a newer subscriber to our show, you know, a lot of what we're about on this show and in, in our work is helping people notice how their personality and wiring and family history show up 
whether they want it to show up or not in any leadership environment. So that's a great example. Well, thanks. Yeah, it's been a fun, fun learning, learning curve. But I think once you get going on it, 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 it becomes a little bit easier. Like admitting my mistakes too to people that I work with was right. huge. Yeah. And like, cause I, I mean, I watched all of, like when you, when I was your intern and the people that I worked with before, like they've been always really good about that. But when you're in that situation, it's always really difficult to say, Hey, I screwed up. I'm so sorry. Yeah, that's right. Um, and not try to defend any part of it and just say, sorry, and just leave it at that and not say, well, I'm sorry, but I did this because and try right. to explain myself. So yeah, that's it's good been fun. Good. All right. Yeah. Well, let's get on with the show. Yeah. All right, Steve. Well, today we're talking about, um, Eight concepts of Bowen theory. Um, yeah. We're going to, I think, flesh out them as much as we can with the time period that we have. There's very, they can get very complicated. You can go really, really deep into them. But um, let's talk about first the history of them. How how did Bowen come up with these eight theories of family systems? Yeah, great. So family systems theory was founded by uh, a psychiatrist named Murray Bowen. And we're going to try to cover four of his concepts on this episode and then four on the next episode, as we think is how it's going to go. So Murray Bowen in 1954 was a psychiatrist in a psych ward. You can imagine in the 50s, the kind of psych wards, you know, pretty pretty rough times. Yep. And his specialty was dealing with paranoid schizophrenic adult men, men in their 20s or whatever. Typically their schizophrenia would onset as teenagers. So mom and dad have been trying to navigate a fairly challenging teenager, finally having to hand them over to the state in some form or hand them over to a psych ward. Bowen then gets involved. He shows up in 1954 where he just is assuming that um, he's going to do what psychiatrists do, which is to focus on what's going on inside each individual, use medication and counseling theory, you know, Freudian theory. But uh, a light bulb for Bowen went on is, is every Sunday afternoon was parent visitation day and he would observe the way the parents would interact with these young men when they come and visit them. And it was a big light bulb moment for Bowen when he realized, man, pathology isn't just inside of an individual. Pathology is also generated between individuals. So he was really the first in that field to really pay attention to how the way we relate to each other generates anxiety, not just what's inside us. That would be the short history of it. And out of that kind of experience, he then went and taught at Georgetown and uh, he generated these eight concepts. Some people talk about the ninth concept that he generated right toward his death. We could chat about that in the next episode maybe. But yeah, he's now famously has listed the eight concepts that are really the foundations of family systems theory. Yep. So the first one he had was um, levels of differentiation of self, which is basically groupthink, and how I think the correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I understand, what I remember is that it was um, he noticed it first in the psych ward with the families and how they all fell into these systems of thinking similarly when stuff began to happen. But we're looking at it from perspective of yes, your family aspect has a a huge part to play in that, but also it affect that family aspect affects your workplace. So let's dive into um, how to identify levels of difference, differentiation of self and that group think and what to do about it and how we can begin to move to healing in it, but not move out of it. Because you're never going to get out of it. It's always right. going to be there. Right. But we can notice it and begin to notice those patterns. Right. So differentiation of self, we're actually, it's interesting, we're going to probably spend the least amount of time on because it's the concept that we've talked about most on the podcast. So for our listeners, the most recent episode we did, I think it was two episodes ago, Rich Velotis, 
He laid out differentiation beautifully for us. And then last season, Trisha Taylor, people can search Trisha Taylor. She also laid out differentiation. So let's define it. And I'm actually going to throw it to you, Brendan, to give us an example. Uh, Differentiation itself is simply the ability to uh, manage your reactivity when someone is anxious. So it's the ability to stop their anxiety from being contagious to you. And it's also the ability for you to stop your anxiety spilling out onto them. Right. So it's really about how can you be connected to somebody but also different than them. That's where the word differentiation comes from. And I think a lot of people misunderstand it, particularly in Western culture, as standing alone. But a true differentiated person is fully connected with somebody, but they're not enmeshed. They're not codependent. Right. Um, yeah. You want to got an example that comes to mind from your own life? Yeah. So I think the the easiest one for me is just marriage. Like I, I think um, – right. One of the best ways that I described it, like in our small class groups, I think you were gone that day that I talked about this. But the way that I look at it is like I have this electrical current inside my body and somebody else has electrical current inside their body. And when I touch their hand, I'm I'm coming closer to them. We're, we're interacting. Um, sometimes their electrical current can flow into my body and become part of me. And that starts to infect my electrical current. And the goal is to allow them to cross, but not to fully envelop your own electrical current. Right. And so, like, for my wife and I, Kelsey and I, um, I we have disagreements about things. Like, I think last night we had a disagreement about phone usage when we're trying to spend time together. And it, I, if one of us gets upset, um, I have a tendency to infect her with, oh, my gosh, I'm worried about her being upset with me. And she does a really good job of, nope, I'm I'm not upset. You just, you handle your own stuff. I handle mine. Like not allowing those two to cross. Like I, I need to take a step back. Well, if she is upset, that's not my fault that she has to handle. She has to handle um, that. I can't be always worried about pleasing her all the time. Does that, yep. is that a good example? Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So. And then in the workplace, I think a good example would be is, um, Sometimes if you're in a work environment and somebody has a problem with a workmate and they tell you about it, if you now have a problem with a workmate but you didn't until you heard about it, that would be an example of the opposite of differentiation is you kind of adopt each other's anxiety and then you gang it up against somebody. Um, But yeah, differentiated and, and really what we try to teach is the power of differentiated leadership uh, you just mentioned all the uh, anxiety generated around change and operations in our church. Mm-hmm. And and for our listeners, Brendan's ability to be a calm presence in the face of anxious people is what will actually help them lower their own anxiety. Right. Yeah. And that's yeah. a skill when you're anxious yourself. Right. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's funny because to me, I think it's it's easier for me in a work environment to do that. Right. Than it is in a family environment. I think that's true. And it's crazy to me because like I screw up so much in the family environment. But when I get in the work environment, I get it right a lot of the time, but not all the time. And I'm always like, man, why, why am I not getting this? Why am I not getting this? And I, the, the work thing I think is a little bit easier because there's, it's easier for me as a personal person to not enmesh myself with that's people. Right. Your identity isn't as wrapped up. 
Right. But then when it comes into family stuff, that's when it's like, I'm in totally enmeshed in this and it's so sticky and so hard yeah. to not allow that to infect you like it does. But yeah, there's two reasons for that. Uh, I don't remember where I heard this from, but somebody, somebody somewhere in systems theory said when there's an umbilical cord involved, it's a hundred times harder. Oh my gosh. It's yeah. so true. But then like you and Kelsey, not to get really bizarre here, but you don't have an umbilical cord between you. No, but no. Uh, what Tim Keller says is, you know, the, the problem with marriage is after a while, you just start acting like yourself. Mm. And and so I think what happens in a marriage and, and with kids is you just get caught mm. by somebody who loves you at your worst moments. Right. And then you feel shame and exposed. Right. Yeah. I think a lot of it with, with marital relationship is that. Right. And that's actually a good, in, in workplace differentiation, we generally encourage people to practice in their family. Right. You know, take the next Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner. Right. That's that's really where all the good stuff happens. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. so true. Yeah. So. All right, great. Let's, um, let's, let's yeah, wrap next differentiation. One. Yeah. No, nuclear family. Or did you want to wrap up? I'm sorry. No, that's good. Okay. And uh, we, number two on the list we've got is nuclear family. It's basically the um, concept describes four relationship patterns that manage anxiety, marital conflict, dysfunction in a spouse, um, impairment of one or more children. Um, and it's just kind of what governs where problems develop in a family. Yeah. So can you tell me more about that? Let's dive into it, kind of pull it apart. A little yeah, bit. I'll give you a story. I think a story would help us here. I remember years ago, I was in a different state. And um, working with a family in the church where the husband was a workaholic and emotionally absent from the family. He provided, but he just wasn't really emotionally present. He, they mostly had daughters. Um, his wife uh, was a workaholic school teacher, mm. and she was in the classroom till 10 p.m. at night. The oldest child they had, I think they had five children. They had a big family. The oldest child stepped in to become like a surrogate mum. She started mm. uh, cooking a lot of the meals. She became the one that drove the younger siblings around. And as she approached her senior year of high school, she went into quite a deep depression. Mm. So mum and dad said, our daughter's depressed. We need to get her help, which is great. Good for them for noticing it and taking care of it. But their solution was to fix the daughter. Mm. In family systems theory with the nuclear family, that situation, that daughter, let's call her Isabel, she is no, known as the identified patient. So when, when Isabel would come to a family systems theorist, he or she would not be trying to help Isabel with her depression necessarily. He or she would be trying to say, aha, uh -huh, Isabel is exhibiting the symptoms of the sick family dynamic. Mm -hmm. And so let's get the whole family in. And so some of the more classic and radical uh, uh, family therapists like Carl Whitaker would be probably one of the most provocative uh, family systems theorists. He would actually get the whole family in with Isabel, the siblings, mum and dad, and he would say, okay, Isabel, is all she's doing is carrying the anxiety of the whole family. Mm. Dad, because you're absent, <clears throat> mum, because you're gone. The problem isn't that she, needs, she has depression. The problem is you guys need to carry some of the weight she's carrying. And Carl Whitaker would even go so far as to say to the, like the five-year-old, hey, would you apologize to your older sister? Like he would even mm. lead people through kind of a repentance. Wow. So uh, nuclear family is simply the recognition that problems aren't all inside us, they're also between us. And that uh, with some time and skill, even when you're in a family, you can start to notice how you're contributing to the anxiety 
of your own family. And I've got an example from my family I'd be happy to share, but if you've sure. got one, go yeah, for it. Go ahead and you share. I'll be thinking about mine. I'm trying to, mine's kind of a more sensitive subject mm. right now. So yeah. I have to kind of be careful, I think, when I talk about it. Yeah. So, so I've got an interesting situation where because I, I have studied this material because it's benefited me so much, I can be anxious to get my kids to live it before I lived it. Like I, I've noticed in myself as a parent, when my kids come home anxious with maybe drama at school, something like that, uh, early on, several years ago, I would try to teach them these concepts and would neglect to mention to them, I didn't get the hang of this till I was in my 30s or 40s and I still don't have the hang of it. That's really what I should have told them. Right. But instead I'd be like, hey, if you would understand differentiation, what ended up happening, all three of my children can define differentiation uh, they've even been on this podcast and talked about right. it. Um, but wh- I think where I've gotten smarter and wiser is what I say now to my kids is, hey, there's another way you can do this. And I, I don't think you have to. Because what I was doing is I was pressuring my kids to do it better mm. in my anxiety. Right. Uh, and so in the last, say, five years, I think I've done a better job. And if Lisa were here, she might be listening and say, actually, it's more like two years. <laughs> I'm trying to think. It's, it may not, I may be overcrediting uh. myself for five years. But in the last couple of years, I think I've done better at saying, hey, I want to share this concept. I also want you to know I'm still working on it and it took me years. Right. Um, but whenever you're ready, we can explore it. And I think what I've done well lately is to say, and by exploring it, there's no pressure. Right. I'm not asking you to do something. You don't have to do anything. And I've watched my kids relax because middle school or high school, pretty tough social environment. Yeah. Been a while since I've been in it. Me too. Yeah. Uh, So that's something from my own life. Uh, I've got one. So I I don't know if I talked about this on the podcast before, but I think um, last year or two years ago, um, one of my sister-in-laws was in town and we were in a car driving to um, go see Wicked. My first time seeing Wicked. Totally blew me away, by the way. I've never seen a production before. Amazing production. Anyways, we're on the car over to go see it um, downtown. And I had um, two of my sister-in-laws, my brother-in-law was in the car. And my brother-in-law is a worship pastor up in Wyoming. And him and I started talking about um, uh, the Enneagram and just got on a whole topic of the Enneagram. And we're talking about our numbers and stuff like that. And then both of us, um, because Kelsey already knows about it and Cassidy, his wife already knows about it, started telling um, Kelsey's other sister about this concept, these concepts, and just started reading them off and stuff like that. And my desire for people to find healing in these concepts, yeah. I totally pressured her into reading and thinking about it more than I should have. And yeah. she like totally shut down. Yeah. And since then I've learned, I think in a similar vein that I become anxious when I can't get somebody to understand the concept and find healing as much as I have in it. And so I've had to take a huge step back in that. So an example after that was I had my, one of my cousins that I hadn't seen, oh, in, I don't know, four or five years come out to visit because he was going to go um, stay at a cabin with his dad and his four kids that he had with him. And we have a very, um, my mom's side of the family, my side of the family is, like all families, has quite a few different dysfunction areas. And so him and I started talking about these subjects and just the things that I've been learning, the books that I've been reading. He was really interested in it. And I tried my best not to say, well, you have to read this book and you have to come check this out. And man, I'm going to check in on you and just say, hey, if you want to talk about this, feel free to call me. Yeah, um, I've had an aunt that came out to visit us that she asked me what I've been learning and stuff like that. And I told her, this, hey, this is what I've been learning. If you want to check it out, you can. She actually went home and bought a book 
and started reading herself That's and started great. sending pictures and stuff to me and talking to me about it. And so I've, I found with this kind of stuff and the nuclear um, family aspect of uh, uh, my infectious anxiety about just this material, I, I have to take a step back too and not be like, ah, yeah. come on. Yeah, yeah. It's a really good reminder. I, you know, we, we both do this, Brendan, when we teach this stuff. We try to remind people that those of us who teach it are not above it. Right. And um, it, I think it helps people to hear that graduating in this material is not becoming non-anxious. It's continuing to work on letting anxiety have less impact. Right. And so here we are. We're still, and, and then it gets really sophisticated. <laughs> like now we get anxious about teaching non-anxiety. Yeah. It's funny. It's super yeah. funny to me. So, All right. So that's the first two yep. concepts. So we had differentiation of self and then we had the nuclear family. Yep. Uh, number three is family projection process. If you don't mind, I'm going to read a couple paragraphs off this page I have. It says, Let's do it. Um, family projection process is this concept um, that describes the way parents transmit their emotional problems to a child. Some parents have a great trouble separating from the child. They imagine how the child is rather than having a realistic appraisal of the child. Uh, relationship problems that most negatively affect a child's life are heightened need for attention and approval. Difficult deal, difficulty dealing with expectations and the tendency to blame oneself or others and feeling responsible for others' happiness and acting impulsively to relieve the anxiety of the moment rather than tolerating anxiety and acting thoughtfully. It's a lot. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I did, a, uh, I did a Twitter thread on the eight concepts in May of 2019 and I just retweeted it today, which is now going to be like three or four days before we publish this episode. So I'm going to read what I wrote too because Twitter forced me to be uh, concise. concise. Uh, family projection process. A parent worries about a child and focuses anxiety on the child, making the child more anxious and more symptomatic so that the parent applies more focus. Mm. The child becomes the identified patient of the parent's anxiety. So grades would be a great example of this. Right. Helicopter parenting. Yep. Uh, Lisa was telling me the the latest thing is lawnmower parenting. What is that? Yeah, I'd never heard of it either. The parent mows the path smooth. Oh my goodness! So the kid can walk without any obstacles or challenges. Wow. Well, I think it comes from a good place, <laughs> right? It's well meaning, but it's crazy. Yeah. So um, it is similar to the nuclear family idea because both of these concepts can generate an identified patient, but right. Um, you know, if, if we go to a cliche, if if you always wanted to uh, play cello and you make your kid play cello um, and they're just not into it, but you're trying to get your kid uh, to do something you couldn't do or maybe they have opportunities that you couldn't have. A lot of parents today feel insane amounts of pressure to give their kid every perfect opportunity in order to be well prepared for life. Right. And they're not aware that that very well-meaning thing is putting so much pressure on their kids. Right. It's almost like none of our kids are allowed to be average anymore. Right. Everybody has to be an exceptional. Everybody has to be a world changer. In some way, everyone has to be <clears throat> exceptional. Yeah. And it's just generating massive anxiety in our kids. So how do you combat that? Well, I, I do think just knowing that is is a huge battle. So if you're listening and you're a parent and you're thinking – Holy smokes! I've screwed up my kid. Um, first of all, probably, probably every kid's going to need counseling. Yeah, at you some probably point have your parents. Um, but secondly, uh, you can name it to your child, right? Uh, depending on the age, you know, and your relationship with them, you can say, 
I feel this pressure to give you every opportunity um, and I need to, re- I want to relieve you of that. And you can mm. actually recruit them onto your team to help manage the load. Right. And I think the other thing you can do as a parent is when your kid fails or when the coach is unfair or whatever that thing is, you can just pause and pay real attention to what's going on in you. Mm. Are you rushing to meet with a coach to rescue, to do the lawnmower thing, the helicopter thing? Right. And you can just see, in, instead of thinking that that's the solution, you can really pay attention to how is that adding pressure to the very kid I'm trying to relieve pressure from. Right. Yeah. How does this tie into a work relationship? I was trying to think of that. Um, I think the way it ties into a work relationship is through a concept in system series, not one of the eight concepts, over-functioning and under-functioning relationships. Okay. And so I think in this case, the the helicopter or the lawnmower parent is over-functioning. Right. And you're not allowing resilience in your children. Mm. And uh, by them needing to be exceptional and world changes, uh, you're not allowing them to be human and thriving. So then when you put it in the workplace, uh, if you find yourself constantly over-functioning to give every opportunity uh, if you have employees that are at odds with each other and you can't handle that and you're stepping in, I'm speaking uh, autobiographically. This is one of my great right. challenges is I'm constantly over-functioning and I'm still learning mm. how to let people be who they are without me like injecting myself into the system to make it all okay, which is completely arrogant when you think about it. Even though it comes from a good place, it's pretty self-righteous. Right. So I think that's what, what in the workplace you could really be noticing. Mm. Is allowing somebody to start making decisions in a sense without you always having to be the, your thumbprint on it. Is that what you're kind of saying? Yeah. Like allow someone to get a B minus. Okay. And whatever it is. Right. Um, and, and allow people to have rough and tumble conflict. Right. To Uh, fail. Yeah. Or even to, to be at odds with each other without stepping in and getting a matchmaking kind of thing. Triangling. Triangling. Yeah. (laughs) Triangling would be evidence of that. And then I think the other one I'm trying to think of is is I know like if you have an employee who tends to underperform but you like them, when you then tend to make up the difference and you carry the weight rather than continuing to help them mm. carry their weight, that would be another example in the workplace. But this concept really is more profoundly about parenting. Mm. Yeah, secondarily it would be about the workplace. So number four then, uh, multi-generational transmission process. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm just going through the book before I even look at the the uh, explanation here. This is the stuff that transcends generations and families, right? Yeah. This is the genogram material. Yep. This is like huge impact things like death, um, um, hardships, uh, maybe education, things like that, that have a lasting impact through entire family divorce separation, right? Yeah. Through generations. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us what a genogram is. So a genogram is a family tree that lists, um, all the good things, all the good relationships, all the bad relationships, um, family deaths, divorce, um, 
hardships, good things, just different relationships in the family and how each of those carry themselves down through your family tree in a weird, infectious, like a, I want to say disease, because yeah. sometimes sometimes it's not a disease. Sometimes yeah, sometimes it's, it's really good stuff. Yeah. Um, but it's just this weird, infectious, like, spirit in a sense. Like, it's, it's weird. It's so funny to, like, I remember when I put, when we did mine, like, I... I couldn't believe after looking and listening all the stuff that had been carried throughout generations in my family that um, I'm like, wow, uh, you know, where do I stop that from happening to myself? Right. And I think that's, I think that's where the power of the gospel comes in with this concept is that God and has given us the opportunity to use Christ to be free from those things. Yeah, that's right. So Yeah, that's, that's great. Uh, later on, I'm going to ask each of us to share one trait that we've inherited from our family that's really a positive mm. and one that's been a real challenge. Mm. So we can be chewing on that. Okay. But yeah, that's exactly it. Like like in the Bible, uh, particularly in the Old Testament, when they say the sins of the father are cast down to the third and fourth generation. Right. That's, that's this process right. in scripture. Um, and, and then the other way I've heard it explained is um, the multi-generational family process helps you understand what, cards have you been dealt so you can play them better Mm. it's never about blame that's why i love it it's not about looking for someone to blame right it's really about understanding man what cards have i been dealt and then what am i tightly gripping onto that maybe i can loosen my grip on right and then what has a grip on me that i didn't even know has me in its grip right so i'll share uh, a couple of things i'll share uh, a podcast i was listening to this morning and then i'll share my two okay we'll see if you've got all right so this morning I was listening to Malcolm Gladwell. I love Malcolm Gladwell. He has a podcast about music, um, which offhand I don't remember the name, but James Taylor was the guest. Huh. And uh, it, and Gladwell was saying to Taylor, hey, you've got like this really cheerful, easygoing singer-songwriter voice, yet you battle depression and you've, you've been a drug addict. What a fascinating thing. And Taylor takes that question and brings it through a genogram answer. And he said, yep, um, when I came to learn that the Taylor family, uh, for generation to generation, the day we're born, we believe that our the love and acceptance is conditional and that we have to reach for and fight for unconditional love and acceptance in this world and that if there is a lifeboat of rescue, we have not earned a place on it. Mm. It's like, holy smokes, that's genogram in a nutshell. Like he had done all this work with his father, grandfather, and great-grandfather, and then all cousins, mm. and looked at uh, generations of addiction in his family. Mm. And after he got clean himself, he started to do generational work. And he talked wow. about how freeing it was for him to realize that what he's inherited isn't all his fault. It helped him overcome his shame for his right. behavior. Uh, so I think that's the great benefit of generational work. Right. So in my family, uh, one of the great um, traits is my parents and my parents' parents, really it's four or five generations as far as I can tell, have an incredible sense of adventure Mm. and an ability to go try something new. Mm. Um, And it's usually some kind, it's either like moving countries or I've never been a sheep farmer before, so I'm going to buy 8,000 acres and farm (laughs) sheep. Uh, like in my dad's case and my mum, they uh, basically eloped and got married in Canada from Western Australia. Wow. And then they just traveled the world for four years. They got jobs here and there through uh, Canada, North America, and Europe. Wow. Yeah. My sister did that too. Obviously, I've done that. 
So this sense of adventure, like when it's been very difficult for my family and I that I'm this far separated from them. Mm. We're very emotionally close. Mm. But there's also a sense where it makes a lot of sense in our family because we're the people that go explore. Right. That's been a great, uh, incredible gift to me. One of the challenges that was revealed to me in my genogram that I had no idea I did this is if you're a cuss, you believe you are always right. (laughs) Always. Like the idea that you might be wrong, it's so far beyond arrogance. It's not even in the picture. Right. Um, and and when that was brought to me in my genogram, uh, it, we we talk about uh, blind spot knowledge. It was a blind spot that as soon as they said it, I never thought about it, and I knew it was true in the moment. It was mortifying, right? And then I my mind immediately went back to all the conversations I'd had years before, where somebody had proven me wrong, and took so much joy in it. Mm. Even in our my family today, my family enjoys catching me when I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I've done, I've done a ton of work on this. I have softened so much because uh, I do not like being that person. I've, and as you said, the gospel really gives me tools to right. break free of that. Uh, but even so, I still communicate more certainly than I really am. Mm. And so once in a while, I'll have this kind of definitive communication and one of maybe my wife or one of my kids be like, aha, that's not right. <laughs> and I'm like, man, you're, why are you enjoying that so much? And of course, it's because I'm, I'm giving this cuss, cuss impression. <laughs> yeah. So uh, when I did my genogram, uh, one of the things we haven't discussed is, is the way we do genograms is we do have a trained facilitator. Yes. But we also have a handful of people who are your peers. Yep. And what's amazing is what they see, even though they've never had training in this. Right. One of my favorite things that we do in our group. Yeah, I love them. Oh, They're so man. much fun. Just every They're day. so hard for you, though, because when you get done, it's like you've been hit by a freight train. Yeah, it's, it's very vulnerable. It is. And so one of my peers, uh, when I presented my genogram, as 24 or maybe 25. And she said, um, y- you, um, you speak like the Pope. Like it's ex cathedra. <laughs> like you're actually speaking scriptural truth. Oh my goodness! And I'm like, what? Oh. <laughs> so, so I've been on a twenty odd year journey to, oh, to work on that. Yeah, but, mine. I'll, I'll I'll go with my. I think my negative stuff first is um, there's a lot of cutoff in my family. A lot of um, uh, anger and cutoff. So I my grandfather passed away from a heart attack when he was like in his sixties. He was a very angry guy. And I, and I think that that's been carried out through that side of the family for generation and generation is just this, this anger aspect of just losing your temper, um, which creates cutoff because when you, when somebody gets mad, they think they're right. And then they just decide, well, I'm not going to talk to you anymore about it. Um, and that's been one of the biggest learning things for me is I have a very high passion. And I think when I get upset, I get like I get livid because I feel like it's an attack on me personally. And I've watched that kind of go throughout my whole family. Um, so just learning how to, you know, stay cool in situations has been, I think, one of the biggest lifelong learning things I'm going to have to continue to do because I, man, I could lose my temper sometimes. And I, I'm usually pretty controlled, yeah. I think, um, now, but more than I used to be. Um, but I still have those moments where it's like, wow, I can't believe that I did that. Why would I? Why would I get so upset about yeah. something like that's just ridiculous? Um, and I think I've always known that, but I think having somebody tell me that, um, and then seeing that after putting it up on uh, my piece of paper with my family tree and see, wow, that's actually part of my story now too, and it's not my fault, but I can start to work on it. Like, that's good, yeah. Um, and then I think the other side of that is um, 
resilience. Like my, I think my family's ability to, um, when they encounter a difficult situation or something terrible has been done to them, their ability to come out on the other side and be okay as much as they can be. And I, I feel like with my own story and my own journey, my ability to resilient, um, to be resilient against situations where, man, I should not, you know, be where I am today. Like I should be, um, maybe in, you know, like in a center or something like that. Cause I, yeah. I, I just, there was a lot of things in my life where I look back now and I was like, wow, why, how did I get through that? Yeah. Um, and I think, I really think resilience is a God gift that's been given to my family to endure hardships and come out on the other side and say, you know what, I'm going to pick myself up. We're going to go at this again. And now it's more of, that's a gift from God that I can say, well, God's with me through all this and it can't be as bad as it was last time. So let's, let's keep moving. Let's keep trucking. So that's really good. I like what you said about, it's not your fault. It, It triggers for me. Um, Seth Godin says, it may not be your fault but it is your responsibility. Right. I think that's family systems in a nutshell. Right. Is what I love about systems theory is it's not very interested in blaming somebody, but it's very interested in helping you as an individual figure out what can I do about this situation. We've even talked about you and I, um, when we teach these concepts in class, people tend to first try to find someone to go fix them with. Right. And we're constantly saying it's really not about other people. All you can do is change how you show up. But Family Systems Theory teaches if you change how you show up, it forces change in the dynamic. Right. And that's really freeing, I think. Oh, absolutely. It, it's it's life it's life changing. Like I think um, being able to recognize that the reason that you do the things that you do comes from this multi-generational transmission and it's not your fault, I think relieves that, that shame. Shame. Yeah. Yeah. And, but then it's your responsibility to say, well, I know about this. Now I should do something about it. I think you've said before, um, self-awareness is pretty big in our culture right now, but you can be a self-aware a-hole and you know, it's not helping anybody. Self-awareness I think is radically overrated because that's where we end. Right. And we never get to transformation and actually to our true self. What I believe that, what I believe Jesus actually invites us to is dying to all of this, that's our false self, and then actually being identified. And I think the way Paul says it is our life is now hidden in Christ. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, a couple of things as we wrap up part one. Part two will be next week. But um, there are, let me end with this, Brendan. There are so many good resources to help people. And it's not just us. It's not our material. So I'm going to name some names, and I'll mention our material, but others as well. Um, Peter Scazzaro, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, yes. Emotionally Healthy Leadership, even the multi-generational transmission. He does a lot of that work, and you can Google him, find him. Um, Jim Harrington, Trisha Taylor, uh, they've both been guests on the podcast. Jim, on his episode, went into childhood vows, which we're not going to cover in our two episodes, but such great stuff. And Trisha Taylor went into differentiation. Uh, their, their work, The Leader's Journey, fantastic work. Uh, in Managing Leadership Anxiety, I write about all this in my book, which you can get. But on uh, my website, you can actually download a free uh, Genogram uh, toolkit. And then there is a paid kind of set of videos on how to make a Genogram and how to lead a group through Genograms, which yep. is a little more intense. Right. But we would just recommend you do take a next step. Don't don't just listen to a podcast. It certainly doesn't have to be our materials but avail yourself of somebody who's done this work because it, it it's one of those things that it takes a lot of time, but you do it once and it 
just pays off for years. Right. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, book resources, I think, for genograms is just that. There's a genograms. Is that what it's called? Yeah, I think you some of think the. That? I think some of the books that are dedicated to genograms are too intense. <laughs> so honestly, Sorry, everyone, don't listen to me. <laughs> if you're going to spend money, I, I think Pete Scazzaro has a great chapter on genograms and emotionally healthy. Mm. Uh, I think what I've tried to do, and I'd do a whole chapter on genograms. I think that's helpful. I would do a bite size. Honestly, folks, you can YouTube your way through a genogram. That's true. You know, there's there's free resources on YouTube as well. Always yeah. have a second party look at it, though. At least more than two or three people, I That's think. That's a great word. Yeah, you, you, your ideal genogram, you want a group of trusted people. No more than how many do you think? I think no more than five. Yeah, I think so. I've, I've, I'm trying to think of when I presented, there was nine of us, so it was me and eight, but two of them were trained facilitators and then five, seven, eight. So no, there was eight of us. That's about as big as you'd want. And we, we went almost two hours. Right. Yeah. Each one should take about an hour. Yeah, hour, hour and a half maybe. Um, but you can download on my website a genogram key and a, and a set of questions that you can ask someone presenting a genogram. So even if your group of friends do one, you can just have the questions on your lap and they'll at least get you started. And then I, we guarantee you'll probably find some traits to notice yourself. Right. Yeah. So Awesome. All right, so that's four of the eight concepts. Uh, next week we'll cover the next four. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.